Wow! What's this? This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. It's time for the announcement. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Are you enjoying the view? You are very good at decorating that tree. Why are you messing with me? Did Crumpet put you up to this? I'm not messing with you. It's just nice to meet another human who shares my affinity for elf culture. Attention all Gimbal shoppers, please make your final purchases. We'll be closing in 10 minutes. Well, it's time for me to go home. But, but Santa's coming, there's so much to do. everybody and welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you are braving the elements to join us for uh, Christmas Eve Eve worship. Uh, this is, I don't remember, I've lost track. I think it's the fifth of our 10 Christmas Eve services we're having here over the course of four days. Some people might say 10 isn't that a little much, but I think we love celebrating the birth of Jesus here more than even Buddy the Elf loved Santa. Did you hear him just kind of freaking out when he hears that Santa is coming to town? And then he's a little bit confused when everybody's just packing up and going home. He's like, we got all this work to do to get ready. He's the only one that understands how much work there is that you got to do to get ready for Christmas. I just am never going to finish wrapping all these presents in time for Christmas. I may not be a smart man, but I do recognize the sound of a discouraged Christmas wrapper when I hear it. Barbara, Barbara, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Can I be honest with you? That's a, such an interesting thing that people say. How am I supposed to respond to that? Of course you can be honest with me. Am I supposed to say, no, I prefer if you would lie to me? Well, then, I'm, I guess I see your point. <laughs> Very funny. But honestly, I just don't have time for a linguistics lesson right now. I'm trying to get all my Christmas presents wrapped, and I'm a bad rapper. I know the feeling. I'm a bad rapper, too. My nickname in high school was Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice? Uh, never mind, never mind. Um, is there anything I can do to help you finish up wrapping all your gifts for Christmas? 
Oh, yeah, you know what would really help? Opposing thumbs. Yes, I, I think it would help to have thumbs. I'm not sure I have the power to do anything about that, though. Well, what about scissors? Scissors. Yeah, I don't have any scissors on me. I do have some scissors jokes, and laughter is the best medicine. Do you know what the daddy scissors said when his children were misbehaving? I don't know. Cut it out. Do you know where scissors come from, how scissors are made? Nope. Cutting edge technology, of course. Oh, I could go on and on. Wow. I am a little skeptical of scissors. They're always cutting corners. No, no, your jokes are not helping. In fact, I feel worse. Can I be honest with you? You know, we've already covered this one, Barbara. Right, right, right. Well, honestly, I have a love-hate relationship with giving gifts at Christmas. I mean, I do love it. I love the look on the faces of all the sheep in the flock when they unwrap their gifts. I love pouring my heart into this year after year, but the moment comes and goes so quickly. And before I know it, I'm feeling all the stress and pressure to do it again. And I just hate the feeling that one year, I might not be able to pull off Christmas as perfectly as I want to. I think I'm starting to see what the problem is here. You, you want to spend the perfect amount of money to buy the perfect Christmas gift and then make sure it's wrapped perfectly. And if none of that happens, if, if something happens that's not quite perfect, you believe that's going to ruin Christmas. You said it perfectly. And... I just think it's going to take a miracle for that to happen this year. Oh, well, if it's a miracle you're looking for, I, I think you've come to the right place. Oh, yeah? Why? Well, Christmas is about a miracle. It's a perfect gift that comes at the perfect time. It's a cost, costly gift, but it, it's the perfect price. And the miracle of Christmas is a gift that comes perfectly wrapped. But a lot of people end up missing out on the perfection of this Christmas miracle. Oh, I don't want to miss Christmas this year. No, no, no. I don't want you to miss it either. I don't want anyone to miss it. So open your ears and open your eyes and most importantly, open your heart. Midwinter 
So what does it look like to give your heart to the newborn king? And why would you want to give your heart to the newborn king? We're going to dig into that a little bit uh, as we get going in the Christmas Eve message. Let's read this verse out loud together from Luke's account of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. I think uh, this is the 21st Christmas Eve service uh, that I have preached, that I have written, and every time I write a sermon, whether it's Christmas or just a regular weekend sermon, I like to take the text, the biblical text, and just read through it over and over and see, is there any word, is there any phrase that just kind of stands out that maybe uh, the Spirit of God is leading me, let's dig into this and, and what's the meaning and what's the deep theological truth God wants us to talk about. I was really surprised as I kept reading through Luke chapter 2 this year, the phrase that was standing out to me was this phrase, that night. That night. That night is a phrase that signifies holiness. That night is a night that is set apart by God for a special purpose. So that night is different. That night there's something miraculous about it. That night is a night that God is going to birth something completely new. That night is the night the world begins again. That night. It seems to me the longer we follow after Jesus, sometimes uh, we start to miss out on the fullness of the meaning that the writers of the Bible have for us. Uh, especially for Christians, we miss out on some of the fullness of the meaning because we focus all of our attention on the New Testament, and we miss some of the details and nuances of what's happening in the Old Testament. We could learn a lot from our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so I want to rewind from the Christmas story all the way back to the beginning for just a little bit. I want you to just listen as I read how the Hebrew scriptures begin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Part of what I want you to see in these beginning verses, Scripture begins in darkness. Scripture begins in darkness. God does not say the darkness is good. 
It's just a statement about the way things are. It's dark. And so darkness, biblically, is signifying a beginning, the beginning. You keep on reading, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. Again, what we're seeing in just the first five verses of the Holy Scriptures is this really important idea that darkness is not an ending point. Darkness is not the place where things end. Darkness is a starting place. You could say, biblically, darkness is the place that gives birth to light. As you keep reading through the creation account, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you come across a phrase that gets repeated several times. This is the end of verse 5. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Gets repeated on the second day, and on the third day, and so on. Evening passed, and morning came. This is a, this is a verse that often we just kind of skip through because there can be absolutely no deep uh, theological meaning to this verse, right? Now we... We couldn't be more wrong. The Jewish understanding of how the world works, a new day does not begin at midnight. A new day does not begin when the sun comes up. In the Jewish tradition, the Jewish understanding, it comes right out of the pages of Genesis chapter 1. A new day begins when the sun goes down. A new day begins in the evening, in darkness. And you may be listening to this and going, um, Scott, time out. It is Christmas Eve for crying out loud. It's ridiculously cold and windy outside. We came for tidings of comfort and joy. What? Why does this matter? What in the world does it have to do with Christmas? Well, this way of thinking about how life works, how the world works, how time passes by, part of what the biblical writers are telling us, when it's dark, when we have an experience of night. It's not always going to be this way. The darkness will not remain. It's not going to be dark forever. Instead, the idea that we get right from the very beginning in scriptures is that darkness is the time that God wants to begin something in us. Darkness is the time when God is on the move. When it's dark, it simply means God is about to shine a light. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, pointing to the coming of the Messiah, writes this, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. This is, this is the word of God, but notice it is a promise. It will not go on forever. The darkness. A light will shine. Don't need a show of hands, but anybody experiencing any darkness, despair in your life this season. Anything going on in your life, it could be a relational reality. It could be a financial situation or, or a health concern. Is there anything going on in your life and you're finding it very difficult to see a light at the end of the tunnel? A buddy of the elf says, I just love smiling, smiling's my favorite. Scott the pastor says, I just like sleeping. Sleeping is my favorite. I am an expert sleeper, uh, but I have not been sleeping well the last couple of weeks, all sorts of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is because there are way too many people in this congregation who are in a season of darkness. 
just in the last week, we had two funerals here for people who died suddenly and, and way too young. And now it's Christmas. What do you do when Christmas comes around? How do you sing joy to the world the first Christmas after the death of someone you love? How can you be joyful and triumphant when there are people in your life, people you love and care about, who are circling the drain of addiction? How do you celebrate the good news and the great joy that Christmas is all about when you keep giving in to the same temptation time after time after time? And part of what we see the biblical writers doing, they're trying to help us come to terms with this idea that when life is hard, when we face challenges, when we have obstacles in our way, when life hurts, when it is dark, this is the time that God wants to change things. This is the time when God wants to do something new. The darkness means, and, and the writers point us to this idea, this wisdom, that night, that night, your night, this is the time that God's going to birth something new in you. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. That's Famous line from the Christmas story. Uh, next year, 2023, at Hope, it's going to be, our theme is going to be the whole Holy Bible in a year. And so on your way out of worship today, we're going to give you a, a bookmark. On one side, it's all the books of the Bible. On the other side is a weekly reading plan. And we want to challenge everybody to just read through the entire, the whole Holy Bible in one calendar year. It'll tell you, here's what you need to read each of the 52 weeks in order to do that. Read through the Bible cover to cover in a calendar year. Why would we encourage people to do that? Because we believe the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We believe when we dig into what the biblical writers are saying, the full message of, of the scriptures, we start to see that God is always at work. God is on the move in ways that are surprising, in ways that maybe we've missed before, in ways that start to open our hearts uh, to the wonder of God's love for this world and for us. So I want you to put on your prophetic imagination cap. Did you bring your prophetic imagination cap with you? I want you to put that on for the next minute or seven. Uh, we had a little skit and puppets for the people who want to come to a Christmas Eve service and see puppets, and now we're going to bounce around in scripture for a while. So uh, some of you might not like that, and you might be tempted to fall asleep. I'm going to do my best to keep you interested. So if you're with me and I'm with you, and the reason we're doing this is because I want to shed a little bit of light on the shepherds and the fields and what was that all about on that night so long ago. Here's Micah, one of the Old Testament prophets. He talks about Bethlehem being the place where the Messiah comes from. In, in the trivia loop that was going at the beginning of the service, one of the questions was, what's the name of the town? What's the name of the village where uh, Jesus was born? And the answer was Bethlehem. But Micah says, no, 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 it's not just Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah. We never talk about Ephrathah because it's really hard to say, and you kind of feel foolish when you're saying Ephrathah. So I don't want to be the only one saying it. Let's all say it together. On the count of three, will you say it with me? One, two, three. Ephrathah. You kind of just kind of go, Ephrathah, and it's, that's how, kind of how you get it. But Bethlehem, Ephrathah, when we just get rid of the Ephrathah piece, we lose some of the, the really interesting meaning of what's going on in the Christmas story. So Let's go to Bethlehem Ephrathah for a little bit. The first place it shows up is in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, 
we're introduced to the family that becomes the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Genesis 35, we're told uh, Jacob, who's married to a woman named Rachel, Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And then Jacob traveled on, and he camped beyond Migdal Eder. Uh, Migdal is a Hebrew word that means uh, tower. Eder is a Hebrew word that means flock. So Migdal Eder is the tower of the flock. We'll come back to Migdal Eder in a little bit. We'll hang out in Bethlehem Ephathra a little bit longer first. The next time uh, Bethlehem Ephathra shows up is in the book of Ruth. And we're introduced first to a man named Elimelech. Uh, He's married to a woman named Naomi. They have two sons. And Elimelech and Naomi live in Bethlehem. A famine comes to Bethlehem, so they leave Bethlehem, go across the Jordan River to the other side of the Dead Sea to a place called Moab. Almost always in the Old Testament, uh, the Moabites and the Israelites are in conflict. Moab is enemy territory. And so while this family from Bethlehem is in enemy territory, the two sons marry Moabite women. One of the women is named Ruth. Uh, Then darkness comes. Elimelech dies. Uh, The two sons die. And so all that's left are the three women who are now widows, Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. One of them is Ruth. And Naomi says, Bethlehem is what I know. Bethlehem is home. It's what I'm familiar with. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. But you, what's familiar to you, what you know, what's home for you is Moab. You stay in Moab. I'll go back to Bethlehem. And I want us to read together how Ruth responds to that. We'll put it on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth, the Moabite widow, says this to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and so off they go back to Bethlehem. I want you to understand, an entire book of the Old Testament is named after this woman, a poor foreign woman, a widow. Her name is Ruth. She's from an enemy country. Um, She doesn't even worship the right God at the beginning of the story. It's an interesting pedigree for someone who will be a hero of the faith, and make no mistake, Ruth is a hero. Lots of really interesting things happen in Ruth's story, and we'll talk about that more next year when we go through the whole Holy Bible in a year. For tonight, what I want you to know is out of the darkness in Ruth's light, life. Out out of the tragedy, out of the death, a light is about to shine. She meets a man named Boaz in Bethlehem. They get married. Uh, They have a family. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. David, who is the shepherd boy in the fields outside of Bethlehem, guarding his father's flock of sheep. David, who will end up being the one who kills the giant Goliath. And he'll become one of the most important kings in the history of the nation of Israel. David's great-grandmother is Ruth. Okay, lots of information I've just thrown at you in a short amount of time. Are you still with me? Everyone hanging with me? I mean, it's 7 o'clock. This is bedtime, right? Anyway, uh, okay. So if you hang with me, I'm promising you a big aha moment if if I can preach this well. So let's talk about David for a little bit. David shows up in 1 Samuel 17. David's the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. So here's Bethlehem Ephrathah again in the story of David. 
Uh, Jesse has a bunch of sons, eight sons. The older ones are on the battlefield because Israel is fighting the Philistines led by the Goliath, uh, led by the giant Goliath. And David kind of goes back and forth from the battlefield to Bethlehem, from the battlefield to Bethlehem. Verse 15 says David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem, it's all a big part of, of David's story. He kills Goliath, he becomes the king, he makes Jerusalem the capital city. David wants to build a temple in Jerusalem where the people of Israel can worship God faithfully. And the instructions for worship, a lot of those instructions come from the first five books. It's called the Torah, the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have instructions for worship in the tabernacle when it's this portable kind of uh, temple, but eventually they build the temple. And part of the instructions are each day, every day, you got to offer two lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. Two lambs a day, every year, that's over 700 lambs. And there's seven uh, week-long Jewish religious festivals that uh, the, the people of Israel would um, celebrate faithfully. One of them was the Passover. And Passover involves the offering, the sacrifice of lambs, one in the temple, but every family that would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, just like Jesus does with his disciples in the upper room, uh, when they celebrate the Last Supper, it's the Passover meal they're celebrating, and there's a lamb. So think of all the lambs that are required for this uh, worship that takes place in the temple. It's a whole lot of lambs, and where do these lambs come from? This gets us back to Micah. Micah in chapter 5 talking about Bethlehem Ephrathah, but one chapter earlier in chapter 4, Micah says, as for you, Jerusalem, the citadel of God's people, your royal might and power will come back to you again. The kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. Micah's writing right like halfway in between King David and Jesus. He's writing in a dark time in the history of the nation of Israel, but he's saying a light is going to come. There, there's good times coming. Just have to wait. It's all going to be restored. This word citadel shows up in the New Living Translation. In many English translations, you don't read citadel. You read tower of the flock because the Hebrew underneath it, behind it, is this phrase, migdal eder, the tower of the flock. Okay, you're hanging with me. I'm going to help you out a little bit. We're going to put a picture on the screen, and I'm going to try to connect some dots really quickly, okay? So here's a map of what we've been talking about. We've got Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Migdal Eder, and part of what I want you to see is they're really close together. If you go to Jerusalem today, visit the Holy Land, if you start at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and you walk south, after eight kilometers, you'll go by Rachel's tomb. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Two more kilometers, you'll get to Bethlehem. It's 10 kilometers south of the Temple Mount. You can visit the Church of the Nativity where they believe Jesus was born. Two kilometers from Bethlehem to the east is the Shepherd's Field, where many biblical scholars believe is the location of Migdal Eder that we've read about in the Old Testament, the Tower of the Flock. The Old Testament is not the only place where Migdal Eder shows up. We've got the Torah, the written law for the people of Israel, but the rabbis would interpret the written law, and they would tell the people, here's what this means. Here's how you live it out. And this was called the oral tradition. Eventually, they put together the oral tradition of all the rabbis into something called the Mishnah, and in the Mishnah, they talk about priestly shepherds. Priestly shepherds. 
who have a special job of taking care of the flocks out of which the lambs that are necessary for the sacrificial system at the temple. These priestly shepherds would guard uh, these, these flocks of sheep. So the picture that starts to come together from the Mishnah, from uh, the Old Testament, from archaeological evidence. Here's a picture we'll put up on the screen from 1934. This is a tower, a watchtower in the shepherd fields just outside of Bethlehem. And um, it's not the same Migdal Eder tower of the flock that we're reading about in the scriptures, but it gives us a picture, an idea of what's going on. These shepherds in these fields around Migdal Eder, outside of Bethlehem, taking care of the flocks that are necessary for the temple sacrifice. At the top of it, remember how David killed Goliath with a slingshot? And he learned how to become skilled with the slingshot, watching his father's flocks of sheep. He'd kill lions and bears and you know, other predators. At the bottom of the tower, there's this opening, uh, a door, and inside through that entrance is a birthing room. And the tradition of the rabbis is the priest would come from Jerusalem to Migdal Eder, and these priestly shepherds, when it was the birthing season, they would bring a ewe who was pregnant into the birthing room, and when that ewe had a lamb, they would place the lamb in a manger inside that door in the birthing room. There was a manger. The lamb would go in the manger, and then the priest would examine the lamb, inspect the lamb, because remember, the lamb had to be perfect spotless, uh, without blemish, without defect, no broken bones. And if the lamb passed inspection, the priestly shepherds would wrap the lamb in linen cloths and give the lamb to the priest. And the priest would carry the lamb those 12 kilometers back to the temple mount. They would enter the temple mount on the east wall. There was uh, the sheep gate. And they would walk to the temple for the sacrifice. Why would they carry the lamb? Why not just you know, let the lamb walk? Well, if the lamb falls, if something happens to the lamb on, on the way, the lamb has to be worthy of the sacrifice. And if it gets a scratch or a broken bone, it's no longer worthy. You start to put all these pieces together. You start to connect all these dots. And part of what you see, Micah's doing something really important when Micah talks about Bethlehem and Migdal Eder and the shepherd's fields. Micah is connecting the Messiah with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the forefathers of the nation of Israel. Micah is connecting Messiah with David, the most important king in the history of the nation. Micah is connecting the Messiah with the Passover and this story, uh, remembering the way that God saved the people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into promised land. It's like Micah is saying, the Messiah is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, when the angel appears to the shepherds who are staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep that night, the message of the angel that night probably meant something a whole lot more to those shepherds than you and I typically think of. I want to read the message of uh, the angel to the shepherds one more time. Don't be afraid, the angel said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. These priestly shepherds in the shepherd field outside of Bethlehem hear this message. 
And the angel is saying, you're going to find Messiah looking exactly the same way the Passover lambs look as you prepare them for that special celebration. When when I connect all of these dots and read all of these details and see what God has been up to from the very beginning, part of what it tells me is, look at the faithful love of God. God's been promising this Messiah. God's been promising it's not going to be dark forever. And the people want it to get light a whole lot quicker than, than it happens. But time after time, decade after decade, generation after generation, God is at work. God has a plan. And God's plan is going to come to fruition. Uh, Eli, who's on staff here, one of the most well-read people I've ever met, Eli's the one who introduced me to the people who are talking about Migdalator and the priestly shepherds. And uh, when I've been reading about that this fall and thinking about, is this something I want to talk about at Christmas Eve? Mostly I was like, I'm really, this is interesting information to me. I'm glad that I know it. I'm glad I have this information in my head. But for most of the fall, I was not thinking we were going to talk about this at Christmas Eve because it was doing good things for my head, but it wasn't really touching my heart. And then I went to South Africa the first two weeks of November. It's just the third time that I've been to South Africa with a team of people from Hope. And every time we go on this mission trip to South Africa, one of the most meaningful hours that we spend is at something called a baby house. Uh, The baby house is in Polokwane. Uh, Polokwane is the capital city of Limpopo, the northernmost province in South Africa. And the Limpopo province, they're just poverty rate is off the charts. So um, one of the things they tell us happens in this province is 500 babies every year just get abandoned by their parents for all kinds of reasons. And they find these uh, abandoned babies in, you know, rest areas alongside highways, underneath bridges, uh, in ditches, in bathrooms at gas stations. And if these abandoned babies are still alive, they bring them to Uh, the baby house. And at the baby house, they can take care of about 25 babies uh, at a time. And there are, you know, three to five staff members on any particular shift. Three to five staff members for 25 babies. You can guess the babies don't get held very often. So we showed up about 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we got to play with these babies, and about 10.30 was time for snacks. We all on our team, we grabbed one of the babies, put the baby on our lap, and started uh, feeding them their mid-morning snack. And I don't know when the last time you were around a baby, when the last time you got to hold a baby or play with a baby, but often for babies, it's very similar to 50-year-old pastors. You eat a snack and you want to take a nap right away afterwards. So uh, we fed them, and then they just wanted to nestle in for a nap. And so at that time, I was holding a little girl named Blessing. And, you know, I, you can tell when you're holding a baby the, the second that baby falls into a deep, peaceful sleep. Because up until that moment, they're squirming a little bit. They're just wriggling around, not quite fully comfortable, stretching, whatever it might be. And, and then the moment they fall into this deep, peaceful sleep, it's like the entire body goes limp and their weight is evenly distributed in your arms. And so I'm holding blessing, and I'm kind of swaying back and forth, waiting for her to fall into that deep, peaceful sleep. 
in the arms of a complete stranger. And it happened. She did. And, and when I could tell she was asleep, I looked up and I looked at the rest of the team. And I could see Audrey and Judy and Beth, and they were holding babies who were falling asleep. And then I saw Jacqueline and Jacqueline's daughter, Maya, who was with us on the trip, and their sleeping babies. And I looked over to the right and I saw Steve. Uh, when we arrived at the baby house, one of the babies just darted right for Steve and just hugged him around the leg as soon as we arrived, like they were meant for each other. And uh, this particular baby was a Down syndrome baby, and it was so sweet and cute to watch Steve with this baby uh, for that hour. And you can see, I think Steve maybe fell asleep also when he was uh, holding his baby. And I looked over to the left, and there was Alicia holding her baby. So I'm, I'm holding blessings. And I'm looking at our team, and I'm looking at these babies peacefully, deeply sleeping in the arms of complete strangers. And the Spirit of God rushed through me, and the voice of God whispered to me, Scott, do you trust that I am holding you like this? Scott, do you trust, do you have faith that I'm holding you, I've got you? That every moment of your life, you are wrapped snugly in a divine embrace. I, I know that's the kind of faith God wants me to have. God wants to give me that kind of faith. And church, I'm convinced this is God's gift to you this Christmas. God wants you to trust that God can give you comfort and peace. If, if those babies can find it, comfort and peace in the arms of complete strangers. What kind of comfort and peace and safety and security is available to you in the arms of the everlasting love of your Heavenly Father? God wants us all to understand, no matter what the circumstances of our life may be, no matter if this is the best Christmas of your life or if this is one of the most difficult Christmases of your life, God wants you to understand that every moment of your life, you're being held, you are being wrapped snugly in a divine embrace. This is God's gift of perfect love to you. It's a gift that comes at just the right time. It's a gift that is costly, but it's the perfect price. And as we've learned, as we've journeyed once again this Christmas to the manger in Bethlehem, this is a gift that comes perfectly wrapped. Just as the angels spoke this message to the shepherds that night, God's gift of perfect love is available to you and to me this night. So my prayer, my hope for all of us is that we would learn to put our faith in the whole Holy Bible and what the Word of God is speaking to us, what the Word of God is telling us, that darkness is not the end. Darkness is not an ending place. Darkness is the place where God wants to birth something new. I wonder what new thing God wants to birth in you this Christmas Eve Eve. What new belief, what new hope, what new life might the Spirit of God want to breathe into you as you open your heart to God's love? Good news, church. Great joy. Christ the Savior is born. Glory to God in the highest heavens and glory to the newborn King.